Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. I'm your host Jonathan Tanner and this week I'm talking to Professor Amy Webb. Amy is Professor of Strategic Foresight at New York University's Stern Centre. She's the founder of the Future Today Institute and most recently she's the author of The Big Nine, a book which looks at how tech titans and machine learning could transform humanity. We're going to be taking a look at whether we've entered the beginning of the end of the smartphone era, how China is streets ahead of the US when it comes to artificial intelligence, and what it actually takes to accurately predict the future. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Amy, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you here. It is wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Um, And in terms of being here, I'm conscious that we're talking via Skype. Can you just kind of quickly paint a picture for for where you are today? Sure. Here is there, right? Um, Today, I'm sitting in my home office in, uh, in in a very rainy, horrible afternoon. Um, so I guess it's a bit like London. <laughs> Actually, London is beautiful and sunny this afternoon. <laughs> well, there's and, a clear home, sign of the future change changing. Right, home's Baltimore. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Home is uh, part of the time in Baltimore and part of the time in New York City. Cool. Interesting mayoral politics in Baltimore recently. I noticed. Oh my God! It's like it's so wonderful that that Baltimore keeps popping up in the news for all the wrong reasons. It's awful. Well, hopefully there'll be some, some, for some of the right reasons before too long. Um, I wanted to ask Amy, before we kind of get into talking about your book, most recent book, The Big Nine, um, when you first kind of consciously started making predictions, you know, as a kid, were you somebody who kind of was always kind of had a, had a big take or a hot take on what was, what was going to happen next? I don't know about a hot take, but I'm a process thinker through and through. And when I was in middle school uh, in sixth grade, there was something called the Future Problem Solvers of America. And um, schools, actually, I, I'm not sure that that many schools actually participated in this program. Um, but myself and four other friends, we were an all-girls team, went through a series of weekends where we did a bunch of research on different topics, and we were presented with a question. And there was a whole process that we were taken through to try to sort out what the future might look like. And at the time, I didn't have the vocabulary to describe it because it was just a cool thing that I did on the weekends. Um, and, and in reality, what I was doing was uh, scenario planning. Uh, so I've actually been in this world now since I was you know, 10. Um, and over the years, it's taken different turns, I think, professionally. But I've been, I've been working on foresight now for a very long time. I do just want to really quickly point out, well, I would say that what I do is I don't make predictions um, because you can make discrete predictions using statistics for very particular things like sports. 
Um, but when it comes to the future of technology or politics or people, we're very capricious. There's a lot of different variables. So it's sort of mathematically impossible to make accurate predictions about that, that kind of broader future. So how do you, I, I'm conscious that you founded the Future Today Institute, and I want to kind of give you a chance to explain what that is. But this seems a good moment for me to ask you, in the business of kind of thinking about the future, and you seem to me as somebody, as you say you're a process thinker, what is the process you go through in order to try and get a handle on the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think we should all acknowledge that we are saddled with cognitive biases, and even people who feel very objective and feel like they use data and evidence all the time to sort out what they're hearing and seeing, you know, we are biologically limited by the squishy computers inside of our heads. Um, you know, so our limbic systems fire off. We're subject to feeling fight or flight um, and anxiety and uncertainty. And so, you know, I came to this realization a very long time ago that the only way around all of these biological limitations that we humans have um, is to rely on, you know, frameworks and data sets and modeling. Um, so my methodology for all of this is fairly intensive, but I made all of my research and our frameworks and our tools and the whole methodology, everything open source and freely available to everybody a couple years ago. Um, so, and it's, it's something that anybody can do. You just have to sort of, you know, learn how to do it. Um, so, you know, the steps range from, sorting out all of your uncertainties in advance, um, using a, a framework we call the 10 sources of disruption to, to, to really think broadly and map change as it's happening all, all around the place, you know, everywhere. Um, and then looking for patterns. And you can do that by eyeballing it. Um, you can use regression analysis, you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, and, and that process takes you through thinking about implications and there's a way to quantify the trajectory of change, although in the velocity, but even if we can't know exact outcomes. Um, and then we go through the process of writing scenarios and evaluating those and finally doing something called backcasting, which is the, the end point of forecasting. So, uh, we, we try to use the information that we have and develop a preferred scenario for the future and then reverse engineer that back to the present day. I know this sounds like a lot of work and it is a lot of work, but the good <laughs> news is that you can use bits and pieces of this, um, all the time and you don't have to be a professional futurist to think like a futurist. And I, I'm conscious that kind of with the Future Today Institute, you produce, uh, I think, more than one annual kind of emerging trends document. Is that right? Yeah. So we produce a whole bunch of stuff throughout the year. Um, there's one main emerging annual tech trends report that comes out in March. And it has all of the trends that we think you should be paying attention to and explains why and also where what action steps we think should be taken and which companies to watch and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and this year there are th uh, 315 of those trends. You know, each one of those takes a full page. Uh, so, so it's fairly, it's, it's a fairly robust, um, report and those trends are across 26 industries. Um, and you know, the, the, the point of this thing is not to use it once and go about your way, but, uh, to, to use it as a reference guide throughout the year, which is why it's free. Um, so anybody can download it and use it. We ask that if you print it, you're just conscious of maybe using double-sided paper because it's 400 pages long. Um, so so that's the main report. Um, we also produce one specifically for media and news. 
Um, I keep thinking I'm going to produce one specifically for government, uh, which I may do at some point, depending on my schedule. Um, and then outside of those reports, we're constantly producing different thought pieces and frameworks and ways to make this work easier for anybody to do. And we have a newsletter that um, usually every week, although it depends on our schedules, um, we'll pick one tech trend and take a deep dive on it every week and just explain to everybody what they need to know. Brilliant. And I was taking a look at the media trends document earlier today. And I noticed one of the things that caught my eye was that you were flagging the kind of the beginning of the end of the smartphone era. And mm-hmm. um, can you tell me why that was? Absolutely. Uh, the data tell us that's that's what's happening. So I mean, it's not rocket science. Um, if you look at the number of new smartphone sales throughout developed economies, so I'm not talking about emerging or developing economies, uh, where there, we we do still see some growth, but um, you know, all throughout the world, people just aren't lining up like they used to to buy the latest and greatest new iPhone. I mean, a lot of people probably remember going to their local stores maybe 10 years ago and the night before a new iPhone release, you'd have a line, you know, around the corner all over the world. Uh, we're not doing that anymore. Part of the reason why is because the form, you know, we're, we're not seeing enough innovation um, within those phones because to some extent, the innovation cycle has started to tap out. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing slower adoption of brand new phones, people are hanging on to their devices longer, and they are using that money and buying peripherals instead. So as the smartphone starts to recede into the background, we're seeing the emergence of tons of different connected devices um, that currently use a combination of the phone and the cloud um, to communicate, but fairly soon we'll start just using the cloud. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm talking about connected earbuds, their smart yoga pants, you know, there are smart glasses coming to market, wristbands, you know, smart athletic gear. And there's all different kinds mm. of things now. And when I think about one of the things we do on this podcast is kind of think about how tech will affect politics in the future. And we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the political ramifications of social media algorithms and where that take where that's taken the national political conversation in the UK and in the US. Um And I just wondered whether I read a piece in the New York Times recently that was entirely spoken. The writer hadn't, I can't remember who wrote it, it was a great piece. And the writer hadn't actually written a single word. Um, It had all been done using kind of talking while he was walking along and so on. And I just wonder whether you feel with the decline of smartphone use, I think we've all assumed that social media is here to stay. Um, Will the decline of of smartphone use potentially affect the social media or big data companies? Those are terrific questions. Um, But there are some assumptions baked into those questions that you just asked me. So I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion. Social media companies will be here forever. And in this particular case, I don't think it entirely has to do with social behaviors or policy. I think it has to do with the business model. Mm. So, you know, Facebook is predicated on surveillance capitalism, which is a shorthand way of saying that your data as you use these these systems are being mind refined and productized and there's a system for earning money on on the back end of that and within that environment companies as well as Facebook are incentivized to prioritize earning money over preserving your your privacy so you know there there are some things that could erode the social infrastructure because it's not Facebook does this in some ways so does Twitter you know, Facebook owns WhatsApp. WhatsApp has seen some vulnerabilities and there's some changes. So you could stop and ask yourself, well, you know, how much longer does this business model work given the pressures of 
uh, regulatory action and general distaste among many consumers. And the fact that new generations and their tastes and preferences are cycling faster than in the past. Uh, so Gen Z is not clamoring to get on Facebook. They're using a suite of other tools and applications that are quite different. This is just my way of saying um, I, I don't know that our current media landscape is going to resemble our future media landscape, which again is a, a really smart and I think good reason to confront uncertainty and try to reduce our uncertainty versus making predictions about exactly what that, that future landscape is going to look like. And in, in, in an effort to kind of reduce the uncertainty, I know you, you, you've written The Big Nine, um, which takes a look at the big companies who are involved in AI um, and kind of tells us that rather than thinking about AI being a kind of looming thing that's about to happen, it's kind of it's very much already happening. Um, and while I was I, I was talking to we had Azima Zar on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and um, he was trying to set out just how kind of epoch shifting the the uses of artificial intelligence are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what's a kind of equivalent of this? You know, did people when the railways were being built or uh, or kind of big physical infrastructure was being laid down during the Industrial Revolution, did people realize how big the change that was happening around them really was? Do people realize how big the AI, the AI change that's happening around us really is, do you think? That's a, that's a good question. I, you know, I think when it comes to artificial intelligence, again, this is where it's good to recognize that we have cognitive biases. We've been living with the idea of artificial intelligence for so long that what we have seen and heard and read in popular culture and in literature has unfortunately clouded our understanding of, of what in the real world artificial intelligence actually is. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of misplaced optimism and fear. And, you know, on the on the fear end of things, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, prominent scholars and thinkers too, believe that in the distance, you know, robots will be walking and talking and come and murder us in our sleep at night. Um, or maybe they won't be ta- walking and talking, but they will uh, be invisible to us and still murder us in our sleep at night. Um, you know, on the on the other end of that spectrum are are a lot of prominent people who believe that AI in the future will usher into sort of grand utopia, where we have universal basic income and and we are doing much less work and freed to pursue our creative pursuits. I think the pragmatist in me and hopefully everybody listening to the pod um, would agree that reality is somewhere in the middle of those two, and that also, you know, AI is not on the distant horizon somewhere. I mean, there's no on-off switch. Uh, Artificial intelligence is simply the third era of computing, and it's been in some form of development now for hundreds of years. You know, the the term artificial intelligence was coined in 1956 during a two-month workshop at Dartmouth University in the United States. So this is not new. I think what's happened is we have a confluence of a lot of money flowing into the ecosystem. We have universities um, now with enough people training folks who are going into the field that that there's enough people now to do a lot of the work. And we've had, um, we have enough compute power and we have enough, you know, physical hardware um, in order to make some of the research that's been hypothesized, you know, real enough that we can start building commercial products. So that's really what's happening. And what it unfortunately does is make it even more difficult for us to understand you know what's real and what's not and to hear the meaningful signal in in all of the noise 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of the big nine, I think I'm right in saying that six of them are American and three of them are Chinese. Is that right? Right. So... You know, in my in the past fifteen years of working as a quantitative futurist and focusing mostly on technology and its intersection with business and policy, you know, artificial intelligence has continued to come up. And within AI, I kept landing on these same nine companies over and over and over again. And it turns out that while there's a lot happening within the broader ecosystem. There are basically nine companies that have the lion's share of patents. They are incredibly well capitalized. They're able to attract the top talent. Um, They have the preponderance of research papers that are published or in publication uh, process. They have the best partnerships with universities. They have the best partnerships with the largest businesses. It's their cloud services that everybody is using. It's their frameworks. It's their custom silicon It's their um, frameworks inside of what is now AI in the cloud. So it's, it's these nine companies over and over again. Three are in China, six are in the United States. Um, the three Chinese companies we're only now starting to hear about because if you don't live in China, you would have never encountered them. And those are um, Alibaba, Baidu, and Tencent. And collectively, they're referred to as the bat. I was, I was just going to say, if you on those Chinese companies, because we've everybody listening to this show is very familiar with the with the American companies, mm-hmm. um, and we reference sometimes the kind of social capital and and how the Chinese use surveillance, but we haven't really talked about it a lot. So, could you maybe just give a couple of examples of how these Chinese companies, where are they up to? What's the kind of state of the art, and how, how is AI being used there? Obviously, these companies are different from their U.S. counterparts in many ways, but there are some similarities. So you can think of Alibaba within the same realm as Amazon. So Alibaba is an e-com platform, but it does much, much more than that, including uh, really robust and advanced payment systems and other things like facial recognition. Um, You can think of Baidu within the same realm of Google. So Baidu is a search engine giant and actually quite like Google, Baidu also has a self-driving car division. And then Tencent is this sort of amalgam company. It's, it's e-gaming and e-sports. Um, it's also mobile games. It's payment systems. It's this massive, huge 
um, enormous company that also has some inroads into health and healthcare in China. Um, now, these three companies are Chinese companies domiciled within China, which means that in order to do business effectively, these companies have to sort of work in lockstep with Beijing. And that may not be codified anywhere public. However, just I think it was just yesterday, Tencent re, uh, released its most recent earnings, and, and the numbers were way up. And the reason that the numbers were way up is because China, uh, the, the government in China lifted a ban on a game that Tencent had been trying to release. And it was, and the only reason that the ban got lifted was because Tencent made some con- concessions and sort of did what the government wanted, which is a really great window into how these companies are organized in China and how China, I believe, is consolidating power using, to some extent, the might of these companies to help usher in a new, a new world order um, and, and a new kind of economy and new kinds of policies which are being exported to other emerging economies around the world. And you used a great phrase in the book about the kind of the bamboo curtain. And I know that the trade war with China um, and the current U.S. administration's attitude towards China. Oh, my God, the stupid, stupid trade war. Yes. In the news at the moment. But (laughs) I got the sense I did get the sense reading the book that like China's kind of ahead of the game on this. You know, we the States, Obama had a strategy for AI, which I think is now gathering dust, whereas uh, Xi's strategy for AI seems to be to use it to drive a kind of digital colonialism. Um, is it fair to say that China are ahead of the game? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be like gross understatement. Um, you know, the the policy that China has on AI is shockingly similar to the policy that the Obama administration released um, in the in the final part of, uh, of of being in office. You know, listen, I think for far too long the entire planet has looked at China as a country that simply copies and pastes. You know, they steal our IP, they steal our ideas, they steal our tech, and then, you know, we've all sort of just agreed that part of doing business there and gaining access to this enormous market is allowing China to do this and rebrand and then sell for at a cheaper price, uh, you know, similar kinds of products. And that is something that they did, you know, that's well-documented for a very long time. However, there's been another, another thing, another sort of sweeping change happening in China. And that is this country has learned how to innovate on on its own. And not just in the product space, China is innovating in policy. You know, China is innovating in geopolitics. And so what I think has happened is that uh, we have all failed to recognize China as a militaristic, economic, and diplomatic pacing threat. And because we have all ignored this for such a long time, China has now made inroads using AI and deploying and exporting it, but also through its Belt and Road Initiative, you know, and other policies which aren't standalone, but which intersect with technology. You know, China's in the process of deploying 5G and fiber in, you know, dozens and dozens of countries all around the world using Huawei technology, for example. It is shocking to me that we've all woken up to this fact far too late. And now, for some reason, the United States has taken a a hardline approach without understanding that I think the cultural context here. 
uh, and and acknowledging that, you know, and, and that's happening at the same time that we're all pointing the finger at big tech and demanding that they make concessions. We're all going to have to figure out a way to collaborate and cooperate if we're going to attempt to mitigate the current situation that we're in with China. And in your in the in the book, you sketch out some kind of different scenarios for the future. Um, can you kind of paint a quick picture of what those those different scenarios we might be facing are? Sure. So the the middle part of the book, it's the second part of the book, and there are three different chapters. One, each one devoted to a type of scenario. So it's an optimistic framing, a neutral framing, and a catastrophic framing. You know, they kind of read like science fiction or speculative fiction. Um, but the the purpose of a scenario is to try to shine the light on future uncertainties so that we can make better decisions. And so the scenarios that are in the book are all derived from data and evidence that currently exist. So they span 50 years, but they are rooted in what we know to be true today. So in the optimistic framing, and optimism doesn't mean utopian, it just means we acknowledge the situation we were in using data and evidence, we made the best possible decisions we could. So um, in that case, you know, uh, we developed economic and other kinds of incentives to uh, get at least our part in the United States of the big nine to collaborate in meaningful ways, to collaborate uh, with government in a smarter way versus just having a transactional relationship. And that happened. All of these systems were interoperable. There was full transparency. Everybody understood how, when, why, where their data were being used. There were some shifts in our government in the United States but also the formation of something I call Gaia, which is the Global Alliance on Intelligence Augmentation. And this international body has representatives from all around the world, uh, government leaders, policymakers, uh, ethicists, philosophers, futurists who are trained, um, you know, people within the AI community who come together not to develop regulations, but instead to develop guardrails, tests, to do audits of existing systems, uh, and to really sort out what the future looks like. And this group became so powerful that while China didn't immediately come to the table, um, they were able to put economic pressures on China and, and some of the developing economies that it's currently partnering with to make it such that, you know, if everybody didn't sort of get along and collaborate, it was going to be uh, economically, you know, bad, bad for China in the long term. Um, so, and and the other sort of thing that happened in this optimistic framing was that there was collaboration um, versus individual cities creating their own legislation and regulation like we're seeing now, you know, and different countries having their own guidelines and standards for AI. Uh, so this was great. The neutral framing was that AI continued along its developmental track without a lot of change, which means that, you know, in the United States and our allies, so this includes UK, Europe, that Capitalism uh, and free markets dictated next steps, which meant that we prioritized speed over safety, you know, and that really put consumers, everyday people in these horrible positions. Um, the way that I describe it is paper cuts. So you get one or two paper cuts, you know, you can kind of go throughout your day. But if your entire body is covered in paper cuts, technically you're still alive, but life is just nothing like it was before. And so 50 years from now in that scenario, Living in a world of AI is like that. Uh, we have lots of reduced choice. Um, our privacy is essentially gone, and we're all fairly miserable, while at the same time, China has used AI to further its 
you know, in, in many ways, very restrictive and oppressive uh, policies. The catastrophic framing, I don't want to ruin because it's kind of the, um, both the high point and the low point, I think, of the book. <laughs> but, but in that scenario, we've made the wrong decisions. So we pushed ahead individual regulations. We did not incentivize everybody to collaborate. Instead, we pushed wedges between us all. And while all of this is happening in the West, China has consolidated power and in many ways pushed far ahead because it could uh, with that unilateral power in place. And things do not end well for the planet 50 years from now. Um, Usually the question that I get next is, well, which one of these has the most possibility of, of happening? When the book came out March 5th in the United States, I was feeling like that neutral scenario was was our most likely outcome. I have shifted in two months. And given what I am now seeing everywhere, that catastrophic framing is looking more and more realistic, um, which is just awful. Uh, It's awful because we could have chosen another direction. Um, Just yesterday in the United States in San Francisco, new law, uh, new local legislation passed, making it illegal for law enforcement to use, you know, Amazon's recognition algorithm or any other facial recognition algorithms. And I understand the motivation for that, but nobody's thinking about the downstream implications. And also, I don't need your face to recognize who you are. Like, there are plenty of other companies that could just watch you walk down the street and, and know who, who you are without ever seeing your face, you know? What do you think, Amy, is the, is the biggest, um, politically speaking, what's the biggest thing that could make a difference between those three scenarios? Is it, is it, you know, is it, regu- is it regulation or is it... Is it prioritization? What's the what? What, what would be the, the biggest political swing factor? Do you think? I think that re- I continue to believe that when it comes to what I'm talking about here, so which is the the farther future of AI, that that regulation is is not going to be the right solution. Well, for one thing, both of our governments, it's not like we've poured tons of money into basic research on science and technology, so. We've sort of relegated all of this to um, companies to, to do this for us. Uh, the government in the United States doesn't have its own cloud. You know, it's it's using AWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, again, like if you if you bring down the heavy hammer or you know of regulation or if you force in some ways these companies to be broken up, which by the way I think is technologically infeasible. Um, so so that solves a an itch that you have today. What that does not do is solve the problems that that will create down the road, in addition to the problems that we're already going to have. So we've got to think about this in a much smarter way. I think that there are clever ways to use economic incentives, which is not my way of saying help these companies make more money. But is there a way that we can build new systems so that government wins, people win, the companies win, and the investors win? One easy, quick one is using distributed ledger technology. So, you know, blockchain, uh, you could catalog every single instance, every single packet of data that's that's transmitted and put that on a ledger in a way that's public without divulging anybody's secrets or any company's secrets, right? And if you did that and you could track it, and we know at what point which of those packets are being monetized, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, then the ones that are being monetized give consumers an ability to opt out. Most people won't because they want to continue using the services the way that they do. And if that's the case, then give them fractions of a penny, 
for each one of those packet transmissions. If you do that, then over a period of time, you know, it, it winds up being a form, a realistic form of universal basic income. So it addresses, and it addresses the transparency and privacy issues that everybody's concerned about. Um, it takes a tiny bit away, I think, of power from, from the big tech companies, which people seem to want, but it doesn't inhibit their ability to do work. It doesn't drastically cut their revenue. Um, so Wall Street shouldn't be all that upset. I mean, this is a much more clever approach. And also, in order to make that happen, you would have to get teams of people, not lobbyists, but like you'd have to have smart policy people and smart people from the tech companies, you know, and smart people from Wall Street and others to just to, to sort of form a cross-functional team and figure all this stuff out, which means that we're, the, on top of everything else, building meaningful relationships. That is not punitive. That's an incentive for everybody involved, and it puts us in better position as we have to go head-to-head with what China has been doing. You know what I mean? So like, there's like, I could, I could rattle off like a dozen different examples, but I fear that at least in the United States, you know, our election cycles are now not every four years, but just ongoing. Everybody's constantly running for office. We have shorter and shorter attention spans. There's more and more people with access to megaphones. And so I think everybody's sort of ratcheting up the rhetoric just so that they can be heard. I mean, there's definitely a lot more noise and and a bit less signal. Um, I'm really conscious of your time, Amy, and I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Can I just ask mm-hmm. one really quick last question? Because um, one of the best things about the big nine is that it has practical recommendations at the end. Um, and I'm really interested in the question of what can we do as individuals listening and kind of wringing our hands about all of these issues? What are small things that we can do day to day um, to start to try and change yep. the so I'm going to I'm going to leave you with two small things that are going to seem so small that they they might feel very insignificant but I think they could have huge positive outcomes um, so the first thing is most people who say that yeah, yeah yeah I know what AI is don't actually know what AI is <laughs> so or even that it's not a singular thing um, in fact I was one of those people who was like yeah 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 I, I, I know AI and it's still until I started researching and really working on this book I realized how much I didn't know so if everybody could just take a few minutes and take a deep dive to understand what AI actually is what it isn't who the major players are and you know sort of a brief history that's gonna help everybody out because it it reduces the uncertainty because it means that every time you, open up an app or you make a decision or you start writing policy, whatever it is, you're going to be armed with much better information. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, so uh, there's a couple of different ways to deal with uncertainty as a futurist. Um, One of the ways that we do this in my shop is using something called the axes of uncertainty. And basically all you have to do is list all of the uncertainties that you have about AI as it relates to your job or whatever you're doing. Um, and you write those down as opposites or sort of binomials. So for example, AI will drastically change my workforce by the year 2030, or on the other side would be AI will not drastically, um, impact my workforce by the year 2030. You come up with as many of those as you can and weird ones are great, you know, and try to go outside. So like artificial intelligence will help the global food supply, um, or it won't, you know, just come up with a bunch of different ones, take two of those at random and put them on different axes. So you've got an X axis and a Y axis. And what you wind up with is a little matrix with, uh, 
a quadrant in each one. So you've got four quadrants. And then just write headlines. Um, so you use the, the two things that are on the end. You write a headline for each quadrant. And that gives you some idea of what the future could look like. And what that will do is rather than you relying on pop culture and cognitive biases, it's going to sort of flip on the lights for you and enable you to see the world in a totally different way. Um, this is a great exercise that we use with all of our clients. I do it as part of all of my foresight work. Um, and it's just an easy, it's an easy entrance into strategic foresight. And it's a terrific tool. Um, so you can use it to start thinking about the the more practical implications, the policy implications, the governing implications of AI. Um, and then once you surface you know, those headlines, one of those is going to be catastrophic by default. One is going to be an opportunity and two are going to be neutral. Once you've, once you've see what's there, start making decisions. And then what's your next step? Your next step could be, well, I'm going to do some more research or holy hell, I had no idea this was a possibility. Now we're going to assign somebody to really start working on some policy. You know, it, it gives you a much broader perspective. Brilliant. Amy Webb, thank you very much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's all for this week. A quick reminder, if you haven't already, do check out the series of podcasts I've made on digital identity. It's called Inside Good ID, and you can find it in most places that you find your podcasts. My thanks, as ever, to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore robots. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.